Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. changing world. Nam mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later in the show, we meet the chemical element molybdenum. But first, Sonia Sly heads to the University of Auckland where she's going to meet sociology professor Kira Kremen to talk about how she became the basis of her own research and what it means to challenge gender norms. When people are walking with me and they kind of point out, you know, how people are reacting. Sure, you can go to a club or some Rocky Horror event, but to see somebody casually going about their business, presenting as a woman, but nonetheless being identified as a male, I think is still very unusual. How much of what we associate with gender has been socially constructed and what happens when someone breaks the rules? Kia ora, I'm Sonia Sly and I met up with Dr Kira Kremen, a professor of sociology from Auckland University, to look at how gender has been commodified, why sexuality and femininity is threatening and what it means to socially and politically challenge gender norms. Like, for instance, I go to the beach, tend not to wear a bikini, and might be wearing what you think was more masculine clothing. I've still got my nails, which are quite long. And red. That alone is enough to stoke those responses. So you don't have to fully dress as as I do. Those reactions come even with some minor deviation from a masculine norm. In 2016, Kira published Man Made Woman, and in it, she addresses the dialectics of cross-dressing. Now, when I met up with Kira, I wanted to find out what she's discovered by becoming the basis of her research in adopting a female presentation. Feminine sexuality is something that men are fearful of, and yet men want us to present in, in this manner that in our culture has been associated with sex. Let's not allow the pornography of mass commerce dictate what it means to express the erotic, what sensuality is about. We need to recover this dimension to take it back from business, from commerce, to own it ourselves. And that's part of the struggle here. Identifying as a woman is not a symbol of power. Well, why do you think men are threatened by female sexuality? Because sexuality, because libido is, is a force, is a power... And men, in their masculinity, in how we're socialised under patriarchy, do not want to be with strong women. Women who actually can outsmart them are actually stronger and in more dominant positions than they are. What remains clear 
is this. Men want women by their side, but they want women to essentially be props for their own egos. And of course that's not all men. Now gender as a social construction upholds patriarchy. And we'll come back to that in a little more detail in just a moment. How would you describe yourself? It's not who I am as such as what I do and what I'm in the process of becoming, and the process of becoming is one that is endless. You know, I want to challenge conventions. It's not just opposing the political apparatuses of our society, the institutions, the elites. It's also about what we oppose in our daily lives and opposing the gender binary. Before you started fully presenting as a woman, I take it you were doing research into transgender or binary identities? I mean, obviously I'm a sociologist and I am interested in these things and I've read theories around these things and taught some of the theories. That, as a project, came afterwards and it was never something that I thought about doing until I dressed openly as a woman and appreciated that there's something important about this, given my standing in society, and that I could make a statement. So today you're wearing stockings, pantyhose. Does it feel erotic to be putting them on compared to all those years you spent not wearing pantyhose? Absolutely not. I don't think there's any intrinsic association between delicacy uh, and being a woman. It's a certain kind of expression reflects a certain idea of femininity. I love wearing pantyhose because I think they, they're very sensuous. It's a feeling that's distinctive from anything else that, as a man, you wear. I find it fascinating that Kira chooses to wear these highly feminine garments where I can count on one hand the number of times I've chosen to wear a pair of pantyhose. So how did Kira build her personal aesthetic and what does it really mean to wear these items in a society that informs how we should dress according to our gender? I'm conscious about dressing in a way that is consistent with a feminine, westernised woman of a certain age uh, and body shape. People by and large do relate to me as they would any other woman. I've spent all my childhood years wanting to wear these things and repressing the desire to because I felt that if I did, I'd be punished. And punished not necessarily uh, by being smacked, but by being shamed, by being ridiculed. When you have a desire for something and that desire is repressed, the desire itself doesn't go away. And in fact, it can intensify. So, of course, you know, when, when finally you can now dress openly as a woman, you go to town, you know, I'm going to, yeah, great, I'm going to wear full makeup and dresses and pantyhose and, and to hell with it. It's incredibly liberating. So, of course, you know, I'm going to fall into styles that, as a man, I could never carry. There's not a single item that I wear that I could ever have worn as a man. I was extremely self-conscious when first stepping outside of my house. I mean, it took me decades to even pluck up the courage to do that. And everywhere I go, I'm aware that people are looking. But one of the things that I found out from doing this is that you actually become less concerned about what people think. You're concerned about what people might do, but in terms of how people are judging you, you know people are judging you in the way that perhaps they weren't before. 
you do develop a thick skin in that respect. It's quite liberating because you realise that actually you can dress this way. You don't have to conform to these conventions that you feel boxed in by. That said, I think that's different from somebody who is socialised to become a woman for whom the clothes that I wear, no doubt for many women, would be considered uh, restrictive, signifiers of their own oppression in a patriarchal society. It's relative to how we've been socialised in terms of the effect of our femininity. Now, you've got some of your makeup here, so I wanted to see what was in your arsenal. Probably about up to 20 products on my, that I put on my face every morning. And then you also need a variety of those products. So you don't just have one lipstick, you have a variety of lipsticks that you wear according to you know, how you feel that day or what you're wearing. Were you kind of surprised by the kit a woman really needs in order to, like you were saying, achieve the desired effect or a particular look every day? If I had worn makeup occasionally at home before I dressed openly, it was in a very superficial way, just minimal and a very clumsy way. But when I actually had to present my face to, to society, I had to take much more care contouring and highlighting. I never would have done that before perhaps being more subtle with eyeshadows. Those first couple of weeks, I didn't wear red lipstick. It seemed too evocative, too powerful, maybe too sexual even. As time passed, I became less concerned about blending in and feeling that, no, it's actually more important to actually assert oneself. They are strongly evocative in our society. What have you found have been the challenges that you are faced with or that you kind of now realise more fully that you, you weren't cognisant of before? Femininity can be quite threatening and challenging to men. It depends on how we carry it. I have a more pronounced sense of that now and it's difficult not to reflect on how that is affecting me. As anybody in our society represents a minority or is marginalised in some way, you're never entirely sure that the way people are treating you, how your career is being affected, is because of your gender, your race, your ethnicity. And that's something that, as someone who was, let's say, a white heteronormative male in a privileged position, uh, certainly uh, as an academic would have read about this and certainly would have been critical of this, but I hadn't actually encountered it and I never really would have had that sense that, that my own identity, my own position here as a woman or, or even as a trans woman would actually cause others to behave towards me in ways that were prejudicial, that I was discriminated against. And one can never be entirely sure of that. And that's the thing is that Sometimes it's obvious, often it's not, because people will not say, this is the reason why we're not going to include you. They'll give another justification. And, so and what kind of reasons? There's always a reason why somebody from a minority background doesn't get a job, for instance, but it's never given that the reason is because we actually have a, a dislike of, of you in terms of what you represent as a race, an ethnicity, as a gender. When you're in that position, you're only ever guessing, though. 
and you hope to think that that's not the case. There's a danger of one becoming paranoid. And certainly there's a lot of prejudice when it comes to trans women. Many trans women are without jobs. There are many trans women that are living on the margins of society because they're excluded from work or they lose their jobs as a consequence. This prejudice and this discrimination is very real. I can't assume that that's not happening to me at some level, but because of the institution I work in, I do experience hostility. I do experience outright transphobia at times. It's not the point to render oneself, as it were, invisible by not dressing openly as a woman or trying to, what they say, is pass as a woman so that you don't suspect that I'm actually a male. Visibility is politically important, and it's certainly important for somebody in my position where I can be visible and make a statement and not be susceptible in the way that many trans women are uh, in their visibility. Which, in my mind, makes Kira's visibility incredibly political. She's challenging the norms and making a statement that in itself destabilises what's familiar and safe in a societal structure that our lives have ultimately been built around. I think it is political. There's nothing political about me dressing as as a woman at home. There is something political about me presenting in this way in public and articulating certain views, ideas in relation to that. So I think there's a political dimension to presenting as a woman. And that's the thing about choosing a gender identity. The majority of us don't have that luxury. So you could say that Kira has greater freedom to redefine feminine norms, and she's also had the privilege of sitting on the other side of the fence. There are few males who can write on this topic because they haven't themselves transitioned, because they don't themselves present it in feminine ways. And so that puts me in a, in a relatively unique position to write on this, you know, particularly as a, as a trans woman. To draw attention to oneself can be quite dangerous, and it depends on the context in which we're in. Because you're making a choice to transition from one to the other, of course you feel more freedom some women today will feel restricted. This is the problem here, is that we conflate femininity with the fashion and beauty industry, with commodification and with subordination of women in patriarchy. We need to be careful not to assume that the fashion and beauty industry invented femininity and actually fully monopolise it. Gender is an apprenticeship where we're always learning and developing an aesthetic Thanks, Kira. That was Kira Kremen from the Department of Sociology at the University of Auckland, and that story was produced by Sonia Sly. Kate Fakaronga Maikwe, Kito Tato Al Horihori, Kita Reo Erirangi or Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, here's an episode from the Elemental Podcast with Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. It features a chemical element whose name is a bit of a tongue twister. Molybdenum, she says, articulating very slowly. I bet that's a favourite in those spelling bee competitions. What's today's theme for molybdenum, Professor? Well, I think that molybdenum's biggest claim to fame would be that it has an essential role as a catalyst for reactions ranging in scale from bacterial to industrial. 
and it's a bit of an eco-warrior. Ooh, cool. Before we get to all of that, though, what is the origin of that slightly tongue-twisting name? Well, all you avid listeners to Elemental will presumably remember episode 43, which was snappily entitled Lead. Well, it was only six episodes ago. (laughs) True. And in that, we sort of made mention of the fact that the Greek word molybdos means lead, in fact. So molybdenum, funnily enough, gets its name from the Greek word for lead. Why Why is molybdenum <laughs> named after the Greek for lead? That should go with lead. Okay, so short story. So back in the day, there were three very similar looking minerals, and these were called galena. And that was certainly known to contain lead, and nowadays we'd call that lead sulphide. There was another one called molybdena, and yet another called plumbago. Sounds like a pudding. I know, (laughs) or or bad disease, plumbago. Oh, yes. (laughs) So because they all looked very, very similar, so they were all very dark, and they were all very, very soft, and they all had sort of a metallic luster. So the reasoning was that because galena was known to contain lead, then they thought that uh, both molybdena and plumbago probably all contained lead as well. And hence, the reason why molybdenum comes from the Greek for lead. What happened uh, in the interim was it was found out that molybdena, in fact, was molybdenum sulfide, MOS2. And uh, the final one, plumbago, was graphite. And funnily enough, that is why the lead in your pencil is called lead, which I find very interesting. All roads lead to lead. Jolly good. (laughs) The vital statistics, molybdenum was isolated in 1781, elemental symbol MO, atomic number 42, which puts it in the middle of the second row of uh, transition metals. And because it's a transition metal, ergo it's a metal, and it's a very, very high melting metal. In fact, the sixth highest melting metal of all of the elements, around about 2,600 degrees Celsius. You've got to heat that too to get it to melt. And because of that, it's rarely made as, or really cast, I guess, as the metal. And generally you get it as a powder, and then you can compress that powder at very, very high pressures. A number of interesting facts about molybdenum, but possibly the most interesting one, is that it is an essential element that I probably wager many of the listeners haven't even heard of. And it's the only one of the second row transition metals to be an essential element. Just thinking back to our last two episodes, it's interesting how many elements whose names start with M play a vital role in enzymes. Who knew? (laughs) You've got your manganese and you've got your magnesium. Indeed. Yes, yes. So more to this essential element thing. Molybdenum is an essential element for all eukaryote species and uh, it's usually found in enzymes. And the most important of those enzymes is a thing called nitrogenase. And that is found in generally the roots of legumes, such as beans. And the amazing thing about this particular enzyme is that it can convert elemental nitrogen to ammonia. And as we will talk about in the nitrogen episode, that's an astonishing feat. And this is also the reason why molybdenum compounds are put into fertilizers. And further to this, uh, some people have done an investigation of evolution over many, many, many millennia. So there was a study in 2008 that reckoned that we probably had around about a 2 billion year delay in animal evolution on Earth. This ranged from sort of 2.5 billion years ago to half a billion years ago. 
And what they showed was that the oceans over that time were very probably depleted in molybdenum. And that would have meant that the eukaryotes, the organisms that can't fix nitrogen, like ourselves and plants, for instance, would have been adversely affected in that time. And also, there is a relationship between the amount of oxygen and the amount of molybdenum. And so if molybdenum's low, then chances are oxygen will be low. And so all of that sort of adds up to the fact that uh, evolution wasn't going too well over those two billion years. So vital not just for life, but also evolution of life as we know it. What about those large-scale, since we're on large-scale, like the evolution of life, what about those large-scale industrial uses you mentioned? Well, like many of the metals that we've covered thus far, they're very, very useful in alloys, and molybdenum is no different in that respect. It's very rare that uh, the the pure metals are used for many things, as you will have found uh, following this series. Alloys seem to be much more useful. You make mixtures of metals and they end up having better properties than either of the constituent metals that you use to start off with. An example of that is moly steel. So that is steel to which molybdenum has been added. Very, very strong, very, very durable. And in fact, it was used as an armour plating in both of the world wars. Uh, I presume also... for tanks. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes. Yep also used in aircraft engines and uh, rocket engines. And uh, the reason being that these alloys containing molybdenum don't expand when you heat them and they don't soften significantly when you heat them. So they're very, very useful in that respect. And other large-scale use of molybdenum is in uh, molybdenum sulfide, which we mentioned previously. And that's really unusual because it's a solid lubricant. Uh, you normally think of lubricants being sort of liquids like oils, things like that. Molybdenum sulfide, a very, very good solid uh, lubricant, and the way that it works is that the structure of molybdenum sulfide involves sort of sheet-like layers that can slide over each other. So that's similar to graphite? Yes, that is uh, very similar to graphite. Again, graphite's got this sort of two-dimensional sheet structure where the sheets can slide over each other. Another couple of uses for now molybdenum compounds, uh, a thing called zinc molybdate. Uh, for those of you who are keeping track, that's got the chemical formula ZnMOO4. This is a white pigment, and every time you do an undercoat when you're painting, you'll have some zinc molybdate in there as a corrosion inhibitor. And another very, very useful one is a thing called ammonium octamolybdate. I'm not going to give you the formula of that. But there's some uh, eights in there? There is indeed. It's got eight molybdenums in there. Very good. And that is used as a smoke suppressant in the PVC covering of electrical wires and cables. And you're certainly going to want that if you've got an electrical fire in a confined space, such as, like, for example, let's say an airplane or something like that. You want to keep the smoke down. We also said at the start that uh, it is uh, a little bit of an eco-warrior. Molybdenum catalysts are used to desulfurize fossil fuels. And obviously when you burn fossil fuels that have got sulfur in them, that ends up as SO2, sulfur dioxide, in the atmosphere, and that leads to acid rain. And so good old molybdenum is keeping the amount of acid rain in the atmosphere down. Good on that eco-warrior. Good credentials there. <laughs> Interesting fact, please. Okay, I've got two for you. Uh, first is a very, very chemical one for all the chemists listening. A thing called potassium octachloridomolybdate. About which I can mouthful? say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the fact it's got potassium in it, which we Indeed. haven't quite got to yet. Octachloride, eight chlorides. Ah, yes, again. Mm. Molybdate. Uh, it's got two, in fact, molybdenums. 
Uh, very unusual because this is one of the first examples of a molecule that contains a quadruple bond. Now, anybody who has studied chemistry at school or at university will know that there are only single bonds, double bonds and triple bonds. That's all there is. Well, you come into the realms of inorganic chemistry and you'll find you can get quadruple bonds as well. The interesting fact for the uh, people who are not necessarily chemists, we were talking about the importance of molybdenum in enzymes. Well, there's an enzyme out there called aldehyde oxidase, and that helps us metabolise alcohol. So that's got to be a very, very important enzyme. And cheers to that, Alan. That was chemistry professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And he's the resident chemistry expert on the podcast Elemental. To listen to anything from tonight's show again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you enjoy the show, then please tell a friend about it and let them know that you can subscribe and listen to Our Changing World and plenty of other RNZ podcasts at any podcast app. Stay in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle, RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.